This is Salt and Spine. And as I was closing the restaurant, as I was knowing that I was shutting down the restaurant, I was like, my wisdom is not just in recipes. My wisdom is about my approach to cooking, my approach to thinking about how we procure, but how we then cook in the kitchen as well. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Peter Hoffman. Now, Peter was the chef behind Savoy, the farm-to-table eatery in New York City's Soho neighborhood that upended ideas about fine dining. He co-founded it with his wife, Susan, and ran the restaurant for two decades before shutting the doors in 2011. Savoy was really one of the first U.S. restaurants to truly champion seasonal local cuisine. The dishes at the restaurant relied heavily on and were inspired by the produce that Peter found at the Union Square Green Market, where the typical greeting between farmer and chef is, what's good? We'll get back to that in a minute. As a child growing up in New Jersey, Peter was introduced by his family to an array of diverse foods. Both of his parents were home cooks, his mother more so than his father, and inspired him to get comfortable in the kitchen. His mom taught him to read and follow recipes with the joy of cooking, after his interest was sparked by a visit to La Crepe, where he could select and create his own culinary adventure with different ingredients. And the family's housekeeper, Hortense, taught him the beauty of butter, an ingredient that gets a whole chapter in Peter's new book. Now, Peter got his start working in kitchens at a resort in Vermont after a construction job there ended. And as he got more and more excited about a path in food, he trained under several renowned cooks, including Richard Olney. He traveled to Japan to learn, and one summer he even ran a small fish market. Peter says that learning from these chefs and experiences taught him the beauty of local geographies and the ingredients that they provide. Now, we're here to talk about Peter's first book, What's Good, A Memoir in 14 Ingredients, and that's expressive of this type of thinking. It's part memoir, part cookbook, featuring 14 chapters, each named after an ingredient that fueled the forward-thinking menus at Savoy. The book is filled with anecdotes and stories about running a restaurant and breaking new ground when it came to slow food. Peter says the book is not just a tribute to the many relationships he formed with farmers, cooks, and the broader community, but also a tribute to his journey to discover what seasonality really means. We've got a great episode for you today. Peter's telling us some of the stories like those that fill the pages of his book, talking about the importance of simplicity and sustainability, and he reflects on what the past two years have meant for the restaurant industry. Plus, as always, we're putting Chef Peter Hoffman to the test in our signature culinary game at the end of the episode, so stick around for that. And with that, let's head now to our virtual studio, where Peter Hoffman joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm good. Great to be here with you, Brian. Thank you for joining us on Salt and Spine. We're excited to talk about your book, What's Good? A Memoir and 14 Ingredients, your first book. Congratulations. We always like to start with a little bit more about you and your your life, your career, and then talk a bit about the book in, in a minute. But I thought we'd start right at the beginning and talk about the role that food played in your life as you were growing up. So I know you grew up in New Jersey and that you were pretty interested in food from an early age. Can you talk about where that sort of fascination began? Sure. Well, I I guess there's a couple of things. One is that my mom came from Germany. She uh, left Germany as a young girl because of the Holocaust. And so there was a German culture around um, my grandparents, my maternal grandparents' house. 
And so there were those kind of curiosities of new foods and foreign words to get acquainted with and get interested in. And, and then living in suburbs just outside of New York City and my parents being curious and cosmopolitan, we came into the city to do all different kinds of things, including exploring the, you know, the ethnic cuisines to be found in, in the city. So that was always, it was, I mean, there were, there were American classics that we ate at as well when we came into the city, but it was always a place to go like, what is, you know, what is it? What else is there to eat? And, and, and look at these cool shops that are just filled with spices and imported goods and, and strudel, you know, all these things to excite a little kid and go like, wow, the world is, big and the world is diverse and it doesn't all look like Pepperidge farm bread and American cheese. Um, yeah. Not that I grew up on that, but, um, uh, but that was a way of, and my parents expanded the world for me and it was exciting. Yeah. And I know you write about both of your parents cooked to some extent, right? Like your yeah, dad at, at some point picked up this Armenian church cookbook, right? And kind of right. that was his text for some time. And your mom, I know, relied heavily on the joy of cooking or yep. to some extent relied on it. It was gifted to her, right? So they were both pretty active as home cooks. Very active. Um, um, you know, she, of course, did the bulk of the uh, midweek cooking, but he, it wasn't, compl- I mean, that eggplant dish was definitely special occasion, but he cooked on a regular basis. And as he backed off on his uh his workload as he aged, it, it became even a bigger part of his work share in the family. Yeah. And, and I know you, you took a lot of interest in, in food at that early age, like seeing things at the bakeries and dining out. And what was the sort of mix of your interest in cooking as a, a young person versus eating as a young person? And how did those come together? Sure. Um, well, I think I'm not exactly sure, but I think somehow that going to La Crepe, which was this chain of, you know, French Brittany style crepe restaurants where they had the, the cast iron griddle and then they poured the batter down and then you had this little paddle that you moved it out on, rolled it out on in, in the way that you'll find on the streets of Paris. And then you, you put the fillings in. I was like, that is so cool. I want to learn how to do that. And that's different than just making pancakes. And so that was my first experience then where my mom set me up with the joy of cooking and um, said, here's how you follow a recipe. And, and as I say in the book, learning what zest of lemon was and that that was optional that you could like improvise what you put in it and and then executing this thing that was all very exciting and empowering and and then my parents got me a crepe pan for the next birthday and that's sort of where I started out and moved on to some other baking things cheesecake and uh but savory foods I don't know that was sort of later in high school but my dad was always doing savory food. He actually never, other than making candied grapefruit, he didn't go into the, the sweet and dessert world at all. Um, so I learned his eggplant techniques. 
Yeah, right. Um, so it, it feels to me like um, your parents in particular were big culinary influences at that early age. You had a, a housekeeper as well who imparted a lot of wisdom. I was just, just going to say that, yeah, you know, the chapter that is called Butter, which uh, is partly about Hortense, our housekeeper who uh, cooked. And I kind of tell this funny story about how my parents um, – cooked entirely with margarine, uh, whether that's sort of coming out of World War II uh-huh. and the rationing or some holdovers having to do with kosher homes, which none of my grandparents' homes were kosher, but, you know, margarine could be in a fleischer or dairy kitchen. I'm not sure what all the combination of that was, but they were using margarine and I was like, it was okay, but I didn't love what it tasted like mm-hmm. on toast. And um, our black housekeeper was cooking with butter. And I was like, uh-huh. whoa, what is that? <laughs> I'm with right. her. Um, and so very early on, then um, after she was done cooking for the day, she would leave the remainder of the butter that she hadn't used on a little dish next to the margarine dish, you know, the two sticks um, side by side. And and uh, so they were kind of competing sticks. And of course, I knew which one I wanted on my toast and which one I wanted in my scrambled eggs. And soon I migrated over to only cooking with butter as a cooking fat. So she was really important in sort of setting me on a path of, of, of where does taste come from and what's great about it. And, and again, that cooking fat matters a lot and not to go overboard on it, but, um, that uh, it's a it's a great carrier of flavor, right? Yeah. So all, all of those influences, I think we sort of see that you're clearly like leading to something, and and then you decide to you you sort of fast track your high school path and decide to start getting into the hospitality business, right? I think first your very first thing is a construction gig at a hotel. Is that right? That's right. I uh, was using it as somehow as a I mean, it was a way to get established. I moved up to Stowe, Vermont, um, and it was a way to get work and get established in, in the fall, knowing that uh, that the busy season would come in the beginning of the, the ski season and that, that I would be able to find entrees into restaurants and, and things like that during that time. And so we were doing a renovation of a large hotel. And, uh, and they said, sure, we'll hire you. Um, when the construction's done. So I just never left the premise, I, you know, put down the, uh-huh. um, the paintbrush and um, picked up a knife. And that, that kind of starts this, this career then for you, right? Like you, you start to, I mean, it's a, a myriad of things. You work um, with some fishermen for a while, catching shad, right. you train with some of the, the greats in France, Madeline Common, Richard Olney, you spend some time in Japan. Like what does that path sort of look like that ultimately leads to you becoming a restaurateur? Right. Well, you touched on all the high points and, and the people. But what was interesting about all of that was, is that I, um, you know, there, there wasn't a clear path, uh-huh. um, you know, as if, if you wanted to be a lawyer, you know, you know what the path is. Um, but this was uh, more about self-creation. Um, and so that 
learning about food supply, food, food creation, like becoming a fisher person, getting involved in, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of seeing how the whole, how the whole system worked and, and, uh, you know, right from pulling the nets to boxing them up and then going down to Fulton fish market. And then I ran a, um, a small business, uh, for a summer selling fish and buying at the fish market and then having all this incredible product to work with and, um, doing that before I went off to college. Um, and then again, searching out those people, both Madeline, um, and, uh, saying, what restaurants are finding the restaurants that were cooking real food that the food that I was interested in, because Madeline basically said oat cuisine is not where it's at. Um, and I mm-hmm. understood that in a very deep way that the food that I was really going to be interested in was food that was um, the taste of a place that was expressive of terroir in the way that we talk about interesting wines expressing terroir, but she was interested in showing and teaching us that, um, cuisines grew out of the, the, the ecosystem out of the geography of particular places. This is what grew there. Therefore, these are their favorite dishes. This is what they lived off of. And let's, um, celebrate that. Let's learn about that as difference and as great expression of culture. And so I traveled around France, the back country of France by bicycle and in Italy, uh, not on bicycle, looking for the traditional foods. And so that was, that really deepened um, my appreciation for what was going on and set me on a course that was like, okay, oat cuisine isn't what I'm interested in. I'm looking for the regional foods. And so when I came back from, from France, and that was in 1981, new American cuisine was just starting to sort of bubble up. And, and so that really was exactly that. That was, let's celebrate the ingredients that are um, from our nation, from our place. And let's look at the tradition of, of recipes and the culture that cultures that are here and celebrate them explore them instead of always chasing oat Paris. Sure. And, and so that really set me on uh, a life path that combined with then discovering the farmer's markets at union square in particular, and then building relationships with growers and, and deepening my appreciation and understanding of what is, what, what really does seasonality mean? And so that's, and that's what the book is about, you know, um, is to share with the reader both that journey, the, the biographical journey, but my my 40-year study of what does seasonality mean and how does that play out in the food I cook or the, the, the ingredients that I buy. Yeah. You mentioned the green market, the farmer's market in Union Square. I'm wondering if you can indulge us for a minute, because I think many folks would would dream of the opportunity to shop with you to to go through the market uh-huh. with you because of the approach that you take right i mean some chefs i think may rush through or other chefs may not even go themselves right but send lower level staff to procure some things can you talk about how you have approached the market over the years and what how that benefits you as a chef how that did benefit you as a chef 
that you approached the farmers in the market in that way? Sure. Well, it is, it, it, it's kind of incredible, Brian, to continue to have this ongoing place to go to and to procure and learn and, um, and, and be a member of a community. And, and I know it, one way to answer your question is actually to give you a quick illustration of what happened in the green market today. Okay. So I was buying some garlic uh, from a guy who um, is kind of a newish farmer to the market and he grows all heirloom, all hardneck garlics. And when I was talking to him about, oh, well, you know, here we are, it's February and your garlic is still in pretty good shape. Why is that? And so he taught me something about the variety that he grows. I mean, he grows many varieties, but that he learned that this particular variety held particularly well. So he didn't even sell it in the fall, knowing that this, he would be able to rely on it in February. And I was always prior to today on a certain level, I was like, my guy and the guy who I um, profile in the in the chapter on garlic in the book grows rock and bowl garlic, and uh, that's a particular variety. and And uh, so I'm a rock and bowl, rock and bowl, rock and bowl guy. And he says to me, "Well, you know, I found that that this variety, which I think he said was called red chestnut, lasted longer and and longer than the rock and bowl because by this time my rock and bowl would either be sprouting or rotting or dehydrated or moldy kind of things. So, you know, I learned something new that I will carry forward in asking questions or when I start to grow my own garlic, I'll go like, oh, great. I'm going to put the red chestnut in for uh, late winter. Right. And then, you know, I ran into a bunch of people who are, um, it's 65 degrees today in New York City, by the way. So people are walking wow. around in shorts and, sure. and I didn't even have that sweater on, which is really rare for us. Yeah. You know, aberrant in fact for February in um, New York City. And so there were people that, you know, there were two people who used to be uh, one who used to write at gourmet and one that used to be at food and wine and we're 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 talking and we're chatting. And so there's that kind of community of what's going on in your life and what are you thinking about and what's going on. And then I moved on to talking to a market manager and we were discussing some issues about the marketplace and restaurant business and economy in, in New York pandemic related and not related. And she didn't know anything about the issues around tipping in the restaurant business and the problems mm -hmm. around tipping and how people had moved towards hospitality included and tipping is a historically mm -hmm. um, uh, exploitive and, and racist uh system and, and all of that. And so I then passed along a piece of my wisdom and my knowledge for her to think about and think about in the context of how the market um, operates um, going forward. So it's this, so that just as an illustration of community um, and interchange of ideas, as well as the wintered over leaks that I bought that I'm going to have for dinner tonight um, is uh, just a perfect uh, expression of what I love about that place and what happens there and how different that is from pushing your cart down the aisle 
um, of a grocery store where things are shipped in from who knows where and, and, and how it was grown. And, um, and you have no relationship with the people who work there or the people, the other people who are shopping other than to say, get out of my way, or, you know, can you help me pull this thing off the shelf? Um, it's a very, very different, uh, kind of, uh, uh, living experience it's not just a shopping experience but it's a it's a way of being in the world so yeah that's you know that's part of what i'm trying to communicate in the book in the chapters that are about the market yeah and the book really weaves together so many aspects of your life, right? I mean, we learn about you as an individual, we learn about your relationship to taste and to agriculture and to um, how you approach food. There's also a fair amount from the business side, and what it means to run a restaurant. And um, we're, you know, 11 years now since you closed Savoy. And I'm curious, yeah, if you can talk a little bit about, you know, obviously, for 21 years, you had this vision that we, I think folks who have obviously read the book or even just heard the first part of our conversation here could start to understand what that vision was. But you write in the book that you changed the culinary landscape in many in ways we never could have imagined, along with many compatriots across the country. And that really your, your focus was you were in search of something simple that the good ingredients that you can cook with in a room to serve them unpretentiously and the people who shared your values, you know, you did these um, co- dinner conversations and these series where you'd bring in activists and farmers and, and other chefs to talk about that um, approach. But can you reflect a little bit for us now on, on how that feels today, 11 years later and in the modern, I guess the modern restaurants um, landscape as it exists in 2022 coming out of a global pandemic? That's a big loaded question. I'm sorry. <laughs> as soon as well, I wrapped that, I'm like, that's a lot to put on you all at once. But <laughs> yeah, well, well, we'll see what we can work with and, and what different <laughs> uh, routes we go down to, to look at it. But, um, you know, one of the things that, that just to back up or continue on with what I was saying about how what Madeline taught me and what I started looking for in um, expression of taste of place. I think that that's what we started, what we have developed. If we could say anything about cuisine in the United States, and of course there's lots of people cooking different in different ways um, there. Um, and, you know, some people are cooking, whatever. There's lots of different ways that people cook, but there is a, there is something of of the the group of chefs who are trying to buy from local producers and and really are stressing seasonality that expresses kind of a taste of place and and I guess I would say that that's part of what I was able to both develop for myself develop a following of people who were interested in that and then that became because of that and because of other people doing the same thing and sharing those values that became um a trend or a cuisine if you will i mean some people may say well that's over and uh, and other things have taken its place and we can talk about personal what personal expression in cooking looks like but that's what i put out there was my personage 
wasn't on the plate so much in terms of what I could do as much as what how I wanted to let the vegetables or the, the, the ingredients speak for themselves. And that's a cooking approach. Um, and I, you know, I stand by that and a lot of people still do as well. And there's less antics on the plate in that kind of cuisine. And that's the simple part of it, as opposed to how many different flavors and tastes and, and ideas can I put there? I want to kind of like narrow that down. And that continues on um, in ways that, that I think are, good. I think it brings clarity to our, our dining and our appreciation of what we're putting in our bodies. The, 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 the pandemic issue and sort of how that's changed. I mean, I think that, that, uh, it, it is, and it was very difficult to, to run a restaurant. There were huge challenges to it. And part of what I described, whether it's about you know, I mean, the economic issue is pushes people to if if you're not trying to be high end, which I never wanted to be because I wasn't really interested in catering to the one percent, then you're fighting to to lower your food costs, to lower your labor costs, to lower your rents, all those issues, and so that that then has as a culture, not just personally, is that there's this race to the bottom. I mean, it's just like to, um, to buy cheap ingredients or to pay people poorly. And right. yet that's not ultimately what's, uh, the most sustainable, whether that's for the planet or for the culture or for the people working in your house. And, um, the pandemic made a lot of that stuff, particularly the issues around labor, um, in our kitchens or in our houses even more apparent and and so the idea that we need to figure out and um and the we is not just we owners but we owners and diners and um uh and then the employees together have to craft a new equation to make it work so that this is sustainable not just for the planet but I mean, as in the environment, right? Mm -hmm. But sustainable for the planet, including everybody who's working in the kitchen or working in, in the house. And um, that means in some ways, and I wrote about this in my op-ed piece in the Times, that means that dinner's going to cost more. And right. what do we do with that? And I saw something today. It was it was the great Wendell Berry, right? Mm -hmm. um, who, yeah. uh, there's a profile about him in the, in the New Yorker this week that I haven't read yet. But he makes a comment, and and I I I quote him ex in the book. He's part. Of, he's one of the the two quotes of the uh, epigraph, and then there's a chapter that's half about Wendell Berry. And he says it's it's folly to think that we can just kind of green up our economy without really changing the way that we live. And and so in this case, it's not just like you know maybe we can't go out for dinner as much as we used to or did in, in, in wanton ways because it's going to cost more because we want people to be paid well to do their work. And again, what is, we're going to have to change the life that we live if we want there to be a greener economy. And that's hard to 
stomach for a lot of people. They just want to say, I want to do the same thing, but I'm going to drive an electric car instead, or I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to go to the place that recycles their stuff or, um, uh, then go, I'm, I'm going to make a change in the way that I actually behave. Right. So, um, so, you know, it, we're in a, we're, you know, there's lots of ways in which we're in a tough spot at the moment in the world and in this country. That's just one of them. And, and it's going to take some time to see how it um, plays out. We'll be right back with the second part of my conversation with Peter Hoffman, author of What's Good. Hey there, cookbook lover. Are you subscribed to Salt and Spine on Substack? If not, you should be. You'll find our full catalog of podcast episodes featuring more than 100 in-depth interviews with top authors like Nigella Lawson, Jacques Pepin, Samin Nosrat, and Carla Hall. And for just $5 or less per month, you'll also get access to hundreds of exclusive featured recipes from top cookbooks. You'll get early access to our quarterly cookbook club and author dinner parties and so much more. At Salt and Spine, we bring cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. Join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content. Find out more at saltandspine.substack.com. And now back to my conversation with Peter Hoffman, author of What's Good. So on to the book. This is your your first book. Did you yeah. did you know going into it you wanted it to be a memoir? Of, you know, it's a memoir with recipes for folks who haven't seen it yet, but versus a cookbook. How did you sort of, did that feel natural yeah. to you? Sure. So, well, you know, people have been coming into the restaurant for years. I mean, you know, many, many years saying like, when are you going to write a cookbook? And I'm like, I think the world has enough cookbooks. I'm not going to write a cookbook. And, and in fact, so much of the work that, that we did at the restaurant came out of books. And I, there are several places in the, in the, in the memoir where I call out books that were deeply influential to me. So it's like, what am I going to do? I'm going to take a recipe out of Paula Wolfert and then change from half a tablespoon to one tablespoon so I can call it my own, um, you know, sure. yeah. or go, go open Paul Wolfer, page 87, you know? So, uh, it was more that, um, what I really have to share. And as I was closing the restaurant, as I was knowing that I was shutting down the restaurant, I was like, my wisdom is not just in recipes. My wisdom is about my approach to cooking, my approach to thinking about, um, how how we procure but how we then cook in the kitchen as well and uh so i didn't know really what the structure of the book was going to be although i at one point i i proposed a very grand cookbook that was seasonally organized and had simple recipes and then um uh um, grand sit around the table and eat one huge dish together recipes Mm -hmm. and then improvisations and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, that's, that's way too big. Wait, going to take me too long. Let me, let me take this on. And then I kind of was searching for what the structure was going to be. Um, I had written some chapters and some sample pages and things like that, but I didn't really have, the the arc of what the book was going to be and i read um uh i read a book called lab girl by hope jaron which is about being a botanist and okay. um she 
alternates between writing about the business of being a, a scientist and going through graduate school and running a lab and writing grants and all the things about the mechanics of being a scientist and then what she loves about plants. And I was like, that's it. That's my structure. And I'm going to alternate between the business and the passion, you know, or the, the mechanics and my love. And uh, so that's what, that's what, what's good is, is sort of, and it moves back and forth um, over the course of my life and over the course of the growing season here in New York city. So it opens with a chapter of food from the larder, um, you know, or from the root cellar about leeks and potatoes, mm-hmm. and then goes through the growing season and ends with the the chicories uh, and and kale late in the fall before the hard frost is really, or just after the hard frost. Yeah, yeah, and and built around these fourteen plus sort of ingredients. Um, how about the title? Did that with, come naturally some to you? Of course. Right? With, with some recipes, yes. Um, recipes. The, the title, did that come naturally to you? Of course, you know, Adam Gopnik in the foreword mm-hmm. says that he takes partial guilty responsibility for the title because it's, it's a, it's a chorus, right? That I'm sure you hear, um, what's good. And I'm sure, um, farmers and vendors at, at the green market are also hearing constantly, like, where, how did the title come to be? Yeah, or or one more example is is like that a, a diner will look up at their server or at the owner if I was at the table and they go, well, you know, what's good? What's good tonight? What's uh-huh. you know what's special? What's exciting? So I guess it is expressive of all of that. I I did not come up with the title. My editor did. It took some some hanging with it to get to to realize that it really was expressive of of that whole. Um, inquiry and had a lightness to it that um, might draw more people in who weren't looking for something, you know, on the order of a treatise or a, a you know, a tome, something heavier. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, I came to, I came to like it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like it a lot too. I, I think it's it's very um, indicative of what you'll find inside the cover. We're a show on cookbooks, so I always like to ask um, to hear a little bit more about cookbooks that were influential to you. Of course, we've talked about a number already and a number of authors and Paula Wolfer and um, Richard Olney, but are, is there like a, a first cookbook that you had that really opened your eyes to what the magic of cookbooks could be or, or ones that just have been really important to you over the course of your life? Yeah. Well, let me run down a few. Um, you know, so obviously first work was out of the joy of cooking. Then mm-hmm. came, um, um, Oh, I'm just blanking on his name right now. I'll, I'll come back to that. Okay. Um, but, uh, um, but Madeline Kamen, of course, and and uh, and Richard Olney, or Richard Olney, and then Madeline Kamen. But Madeline really changed my life. Um, both what I found in the book and the 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 rigor and science, as well as the culture that she talks about. The rigor being 
um, to her descriptions of certain things in the making of a cook and then her description of culture and when French women cook. And those books were very, very important to me. And then I studied with her. Um, Claudia Rodin, um, The World of Jewish Food. I also talk about that in the chapter about Passover. Um, but, um, uh, you know, and that remains when I was cooking uh, Passover food in the restaurant. That was a very important uh, place to, to a, a reservoir of, of great material um, and uh, love her approach. Um, uh, Judy Rogers, Zuni, also an important book about re- both the simplicity of flavor, but the attention to detail without being... Um, you know, sort of that balance between saying it, it all really matters, um, but let's not be too fussy about um, it ultimately. You know, those are, those are all some, some important books. Well, that, that's, that's a, a, great, a great list, yeah. Um, we always end with a little game. So I thought we would uh, put you to the culinary test. We have these cards here that we use... Um, so this is sort of like chopped the TV show, right? We'll, we'll draw a couple things, some produce, perhaps from the, the green market. We have some protein options. Um, we have a, f- a deck of flavor cards, which are herbs, spices, flavoring agents. Uh, and then we have a secret ingredient deck, which can be kind of just an obscure ingredient or something out of left field a little bit. So uh, we'll draw one of each and that's kind of what you, you have to work with tonight. That's what's in your larder and what you picked up at the market and tell us what you might make for dinner. How does that sound? Okay. That sounds like fun. All right. Let's start with the vegetable. Uh, The vegetable is zucchini. Okay. All right. The protein we're working with is chicken. Okay. For flavor, we have chives. Right. And our secret ingredient is vanilla bean paste. Whoa. Little twist there. So Uh chicken, zucchini, chives, and vanilla bean paste. What might we make? Right. Well, uh, obviously, the secret ingredient is going to be the driver here to figure out how to deal with that. Right. Um, and I guess what I would do um, somehow, um, I want it. I want to move it over into the into the zucchini prep, so that that flavor is, you know, zucchini is on the blander side, um, but uh, but. A, a nice flavor, but what, what are we, what are we going to kick it up with in a certain way? And sure. I'm not sure that I would actually ever do this, but that's sort of what, where I would go with it is I'm going to stew the, um, uh, I mean, do I have other things to work you, with? You have a, yeah, things? you have a little bit of a basic I mean, larder, I, 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 right? Yeah. And onions <laughs> yes. And stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah so I'm going to stew the, the zucchini, um, and really soften it with some onions um, and, um, but not, not garlic. Um, and then, um, uh, put a little bit as it's, as it's cooking down and softening out, I'm going to try a little bit of that, um, uh, vanilla paste in there to see what that becomes. Um, so I, I want that to have this kind of, you know, um, exotic, um, uh, tropical component into what is going to be the compote for, 
our chicken. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, uh, and I guess what I would, you know, again, I would sort of, a, in this case, the, the the chicken is going to be a it was it just chicken it was or just did it say open a, open-ended chicken so i think it's your choice right. what the cut is yeah yeah so you know um i i think i would sort of you know i i, I i'd like the contrast between the softened um sweetish zucchini with the crispiness of of the skin so i'm going to just salt and pepper it and crisp that up maybe finish it in the oven. Um, but, but did I say, you know, I, I'm, I tend to be a, a leg and thigh guy as opposed uh-huh. to where the breast can dry out more. So whatever, but I, I can, I, I can make that, um, crispy and, and not dried out. And then, um, you know, uh, the chives of course sort of bring crispness and freshness and brightness to the whole thing. And so super fine cut. Um, and then, um, just dancing all on top of the plate, on top of the zucchini, the cooked down zucchini compote, something like that. Yeah. Um, I think that sounds, that sounds great. Yeah. I, I love it. Uh, let's, let's close it out with one more. Um, I, oh, okay. I always love, we, we play this game with all of our guests and I just love to see um, people's culinary. So uh-huh. Uh-huh. great. All right. So uh, vegetable we're working with this round is cauliflower. Uh-huh. Our protein is tofu. Uh huh. Our flavor, let's pull from the middle here, is basil. Uh huh. And our secret ingredient is fish sauce. Oh, nice. That's yeah. really good. Cauliflower, tofu, basil, and fish sauce. Oh, that's a good hand. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a, that's already a dish. You that know, is, so yeah. <laughs> how uh, would you do it? <laughs> Well, I think that I would, um, um, what would I do? I think I'd like the, you know, again, I like something crispy. So I think I'm going to go for trying to, um, cornstarch or flour, the, um, the tofu and then brown that. Um, so it's got some crispness to it and, and the cauliflower actually maybe not so much, but sort of sweat that and, and, and soften it, um, again with some, some shallots and um, um, uh, that, that that's good enough without going too far afield. And, sure. and then in combining those two, then again, um, late in the game, then I'm going to, I, I want to use the fish sauce and the classic fish sauce, lime juice, sugar um, as a way of balancing and seasoning those two kind of blander ingredients and throw torn basil in at the end. And, um, uh, and that's a pretty nice little, uh, dish to eat with some rice or, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, absolutely. That's, that sounds great. Well, that one was handed to you, but I, I love seeing <laughs> what you do with it. That's a, a good combo. Well, it was so much fun yeah. talking with you, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us. Likewise, Brian. And I hope that uh, people are in, in, inspired to, to, to check out the book. It's, um, it's, um, it's going to be coming out in paperback in October. Very exciting. But, um, but there it is at the moment um, in hardcover and um and as I said, I'm, I'm really proud of the way that 
Um, it's not just, uh, uh, you know, a guy, a chef who's past their prime and closed their restaurants, looking back at um, the, the, the old days. It's really pushing myself forward and, and all that ingredient stuff is about the present and the future and, um, and things to think about for, for the rest of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Peter. Great. Thanks. I'm glad we were able to make this happen, Brian. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. You can find bonus content, including featured recipes from today's show and all of our episodes on our new Substack, Salt and Spine. You can subscribe to get access to our catalog of recipes from our favorite cookbooks and partake in our quarterly cookbook club. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine podcast, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes or some feedback on our Substack. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Clea Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is offering digital and in-person classes for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia at Omnivore Books, and to Monique at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.